everybody. Uh, my name is Brian. It's really good to be back with you guys. Uh, if you were here last night, you probably heard that I was sick. I don't get sick very often. The last time I got sick was in the fall of 2007. Uh, but as I told many people this week, I, when I do get sick, I make up for lost time. And it was not pretty. But it is good to be back now and be with you guys. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, I know this is sort of awkward because now I'm introducing myself as the sickly guy, but I promise I'm not contagious anymore. Uh, but my name is Brian, and I'm the lead pastor here at the Summit Church, and really, really glad uh, that you're here, uh, especially as we get ready to wrap up uh, this week and the next two weeks, uh, our series in First and Second Timothy called Legacy. What we've been looking at is how an older man named Paul, one of the first followers of Jesus, is writing a final letter to a young friend named Timothy. And Paul is imprisoned, and as we get ready to look at these uh, paragraphs tonight, these are some of the final paragraphs of the final letter that Paul would ever write before he is executed by Roman authorities for preaching Jesus. It was against the law at the time. He's in prison, and he is about to be beheaded, and he is well aware of that. Now, before we jump into the text, here's what I want to do. I want to begin tonight by asking you a question that I've asked myself this week, and the question is this, is if this were you, if, if this were a circumstance that you were in, if you were uh, given maybe a few months, a few weeks, maybe even a few days left to live, and you had the opportunity to write a letter, an email, heck, even a text message to somebody that you really, really love, what is it that you would write? What is it that you would write? What, what would you put in that letter? And particularly at that conclusion, as we're getting ready to begin Paul's conclusion tonight, what is it that you would conclude with to your mom, to your dad, to your boyfriend, to your spouse, to that person that matters the most in your life? Now, here's the thing. For me, I think very practical. So if I think I'm writing my wife, Megan, you know, a farewell letter, I, I'm, I'm thinking very pragmatically. I'm thinking like, hey, like, the pin code to my debit card is like 6364, right? Which, that's not what it is, so don't steal my wallet, okay? Uh, I'm thinking something really practical like that. Or like, hey, I've lost a lot of weight since the Facebook picture I put up was there. So like, change my Facebook picture profile because I don't want to look fat for like all eternity until Facebook goes away or something like that. I would think very, very pragmatically. But here's the thing is I was asking myself, what is it that I would write in my conclusion? It's very different than what Paul writes in his conclusion. It's very, very different because what Paul spends the majority of the final paragraphs of the final letter that he would ever write doing is pleading with Timothy and consequently pleading with you and I to know and love our Bibles. Okay, so for any of you who answer that question in your head, how many of you had that as the final thing you would say? Like, those of you who are nodding your head, you're either lying or you're, like, sucking up to God and you're trying to get, like, a gold star on your chart for Jesus, right? Nobody, nobody thinks, like, that's what I'm going to conclude with. I'm going to conclude with know and love your Bible. But that's what Paul does. Now, now if that wasn't you, you're, you're not out of place because if you're a typical American, the reality is, is that's, that's just the way you think. You're, you're largely, like, like me a lot of times, biblically apathetic. And so the United States is an interesting country in that we have more exposure to the Bible than any nation in world history, but we are more biblically illiterate than any nation in world history at the same time. And so the reality is if you're typically a typical American, you own four copies of the Bible, four, and probably many of you own many more, but the average American owns four copies. And so you have, you know, the copy that you keep in your car, 
I don't know why you keep it in your car. Like, maybe it's good luck for when you drive around. You have the copy that you got as a graduation present, and you were hoping to get a gift card to Starbucks, but you got a Bible, and you're like, what do I, what do, I do with this? It won't buy me, like, a mocha or a frappuccino. Or, you know, you have the Bible that you just keep on your bookshelf because, I don't know, you don't read, but you need to have books on your bookshelf, and that seems like a good one to have on your bookshelf. And it's just gathering dust right now, right? You have plenty of Bibles, but the reality is, is that we are biblically illiterate, and probably for many of you, despite the fact that you own a multitude of Bibles, you really don't have a great idea idea of what's in there. And I'm not trying to be mean or critical. I'm just saying, just when it comes down to it, when you form your opinion about what the Bible says and what it doesn't say, you know, that's largely formed by what people have said maybe confidently about what the Bible says. It's formed by maybe a professor that you had in college that says what the Bible says. Maybe it's an episode of South Park that you watched that was all about Jesus. And you're like, well, I guess the Bible teaches that. We are more exposed to Bibles than any nation in history, but we are more biblically illiterate than any nation in history at the same time. In fact, actually this week, I saw that the White House press secretary, I think his name is Jay Kaysen, I may be wrong about that, but the White House press secretary, he, uh, he, was, he was doing a speech on behalf of President Obama, and I'm not sure what it was, but he gets towards the conclusion, and he says real authoritatively, he says this, he says, and we all know that the Bible says that the Lord helps those who help themselves. And I guess, you know, because he said it so authoritatively, everybody's like, hmm, like, that's good, that's, yeah, like, that's good, I, I mean, that was risky for him to quote the Bible. Now, the only problem is, is that's not in the Bible. That's from Aesop's Fables. And, and it's funny that later, like, you know, everybody in this room is nodding their heads in agreement, like, that is so compelling, so powerful. And he wasn't quoting the Bible whatsoever. We are exposed to the Bible more than any other nation in history, but we are more biblically illiterate than any nation in history. And so when we come into seeing how Paul would conclude the final paragraphs of his final letter as he's getting ready to be executed. It is bizarre, it is out of place for you and I to think that a man would plead with his closest friends to know and love their Bibles. But that's what he's going to do. And there's something about the urgency of Paul. There's something about the intelligence of Paul. There's something about the exhortation of Paul and the claims that he's going to make about what the Bible is as being the very words of God, the means by which we know and understand the character and nature of God that should lead to us saying that we at least need to investigate these claims on our own. This is Paul's plea. Know and love your Bible. And the way he's going to make this plea is he's going to tell us that we should make three requests of God. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you're kind of new to this church thing, if, you, if you're kind of exploring religion, or maybe you've had negative experiences with religion, the reality is, is it's, it's confusing about who God is. It's confusing to know what you can and can't do with God and what's appropriate. And one of the things that is appropriate in Christianity is that you can ask things of God. That's why we're all about prayer. We're all about prayer. And God is personal. He desires that you know him, and he desires to work on your behalf. And so because of that, we can come to God and ask certain things. And what Paul is going to do, what Paul is going to do tonight is challenge you and I to make three requests of God, three requests of God to make them true in our life. And these three requests will thread together towards a central thrust that you and I need to know and love our Bibles. Okay? You with me? Now here's request number one. Request number one is this. God, show me my need, okay? Request number one of God is to ask him, God, show me my need. And here's what he writes. Verse one, chapter three. But understand this, that in the last days, now the last days is just a term for the days that take place in between when Jesus 
came to the earth the first time and when we as Christians believe Jesus is returning in the future for a second time, okay? So Paul lived in the last days, we live in the last days. That's all he's referring to now. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Now, what Paul's going to do here is make a claim that no matter what you believe about God, that you would probably agree with being true. And it's this. The world is messed up. The world is jacked up. Now, when you live in the city, it's not that hard to convince people of this. In the suburbs, you tell people that, and they laugh as they drive off in their Hummers, and their kids are drinking their organic apple juice, right? But in the city, but in the city, we see, we come up front with, with the brokenness of the world all the time. And so my wife and I, we walk from our house to the Safeway on Park Avenue West all the time to get groceries. And we call it the unsafe way because somebody's getting arrested there every single time I go there. And every time on that walk, I'll tell you what I'll see. I will see substance abuse. I will see other forms of abuse. I will see poverty. I will see brokenness. I will see unbelievable brokenness that anybody, no matter what you believe about God, you would look at and say, the world is broken. But Paul says this, is the world isn't just broken. The world doesn't just need to be redeemed. The reason, the reason the world is broken is, get this, people. Okay? People. People are the reason that the world is messed up. Look at verse 2, because he says, for people. And then what he does is he rips off 21 descriptions of jacked up messed up people. Now, no matter what you believe about God, you're probably still with me. You probably, yes, the world's messed up. And I can even think of people who have messed up the world. I can think of people I work with who mess up the world. I can think of people in my family that if they just went away, my life would be a lot happier. I'm with you. The world's messed up and people are the problem. And here's what I could do. I could spend the next 15 minutes talking about politicians, talking about celebrities, talking about, you know, that coworker that you have, and all of you are going to nod with me and drive home, and you're going to like me a lot, and then you're going to come back next week, and it's going to be awesome. But here's the problem. Here's the catch. Is that what Paul is after is not the self-righteousness that comes when we think that the world's problems are everybody else's fault other than our own. He's not after your self-righteousness. He is after your heart. And the reality is when I look At this list, I can't even get past the first few descriptions of 21 without saying, I'm the problem. This describes me. This doesn't describe somebody else. I mean, look at it. I can't even get past verse 2 when he started talking about lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant. Like, that is me. That is you. That is us. I am the problem. Now, here's the thing is it's always easier to make somebody else the reason for the problem, right? Right? I mean, isn't it? So anytime you see a protest, for example, you know, Occupy Wall Street's happening right now and Occupy Denver. I'm not making a political statement here one way or the other. But the reality is, you know what I've never seen in a protest? I've never seen anybody carrying a sign over their head saying, I am the problem, right? It's like, it's like, Big corporations are the problem, or, or, or government's the problem, or the politicians the problem. I would love to see one time somebody carrying a sign over their head that says, I shouldn't have used my student loans to buy a plasma TV. It's my fault, right? Like, I just want to hear a chant of people downtown Denver going, it's my fault, it's my fault. But you never hear that, do you? It's somebody else's fault. That's, what you, that's how you can gather thousands of people, is saying it's somebody else's fault. You want to gather a protest of people saying it's your fault, nobody will show up. It's interesting. This has not just been the problem in the world today. This has been the way 
for, throughout history. It's interesting, actually, in the early 1900s, I'm sort of a history nerd, but in the early 1900s, when the First World War happened uh, in Great Britain, it, it really disillusioned a lot of people because as the First World War was starting, what, what, what there was was incredible technological and scientific breakthroughs that led to people being tremendously optimistic about the way the world was going. They were like, you know, we've evolved and become so enlightened that we'll, you know, we've just worked through any sort of problems that we may have, and there will be peace forever because we've just evolved to the point that we have. And then all of a sudden what happens is the First World War breaks out, and there's more bloodshed than any war in human history, and the technology they felt would save them actually killed more people than any time in history. Essentially, this newspaper in, the great, in uh, great Britain put out a question for people because people were starting to ask, like, what, what's the problem? Like, what, this didn't work the way that we thought. And they put out this, pro- this question. They said this. What is the problem with the world? It was that. And just tried to get readers to respond. What is the problem with the world? And all these people responded with their input. You know, the government's to blame or, or people's selfishness to blame. Or if we would just sit, share more of our resources, we wouldn't have wars like this. There was a guy named G.K. Chesterton who was an early Christian theologian in the 20th century. And he wrote to the newspaper, and here's what he said. He said, what's the problem in the world? I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. And I, and I was reading somebody talking about that quote this week, and he said this. It's somebody who writes something like that that has truly grasped the message of Jesus. When you look at this list, if you immediately think of everybody other than you, then the reality is, is that this book that's all about God's grace and forgiveness and redemption will always be for somebody else as well. And the reality is, is God will have nothing for you in this book. He'll have nothing for you in this book. If you're the type of person, you look at your spouse and you just say, you know what, if you would stop acting like this, then I wouldn't have to be angry all the time at you and treat you like this. If you're the type of friend that says, you know what, like if my friend was a little kinder and a little more competent, I wouldn't have to criticize them all the time and slander them in, their, in my heart behind their back. If you're the type of person that says at work, you know, If my boss would just give me the time off and the pay that I deserve, then I wouldn't have to spend half the day slacking off on the internet. If it's always somebody else's fault, then this book has nothing for you. This book has nothing for you. Because God's grace, his forgiveness, his offer of redemption will always be for somebody else. It'll always be for somebody else. But let me tell you something. is It is tremendously, unbelievably liberating to lay down your arms, stop being your own best defense attorney, and just confessing and admitting that you're not that good of a person. I'm not that good of a person. God, do something in my life. Redeem the brokenness in my life. And it's with a confession of weakness. It's it's with a confession of inadequacy that God can do something radical, and this book comes alive for you. Okay, plea number one is this. is God, show me my need. Show me I'm the one to blame. Show me my need. Plea number two is this. God, make me an example. Okay? God, make me an example. Here's what Paul writes, starting in verse 10. He says, you, however, so notice, notice the contrast. Timothy and we as Christians are called to something different. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra. So what Paul is doing here 
is he is calling Timothy to something different, and not just something different, but something specific. And it's his specific example that he has laid out with his life. And it's a strong challenge. It's a really strong challenge. It's the type of challenge that it's hard to have a neutral reaction toward. And my guess is probably some of you, some of you look at this and you're off put. You're kind of like, Paul, this is a little bit cocky. This is a little bit arrogant. Like, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, like, when did the me monster come out? Put it away, Paul. Stop being so arrogant. But here's what I would say to you. I would say that you need to recognize that you've been conditioned by being raised in a culture where it's totally cool to talk about how you're seeking truth, but it's totally uncool to say that you've actually found truth. And you've been raised in a culture where, where it's only okay to say that you're absolutely sure that you're not absolutely sure of anything. And you come to somebody talking so certainly about, with such certainty about the truth that they found, and somebody's actually speaking with some backbone about the truth, and it's off-putting. And I would say Paul's not arrogant. I mean, in 1 Timothy, he talks about how he is the chief sinner. He is lead sinner. He's not arrogant, but he's come to a place where he's found the truth, and he understands the most gracious and loving thing he can do is call other people to it and follow my, my example, follow my life as I follow Jesus. Here's the thing. Some of you, some of you will be off-put, but here's the other thing. Some of you will not be off-put whatsoever. You will love this. You will not just love this, but you will join the church because of this. You will not just join the church of this, you will join a group because of this. And you will sit in that group, and you will sit in a circle, and you will talk about what, what confidence Paul had in the power of the gospel. And, and you'll put quotes on your Twitter feed and on your Facebook page about your confidence in the gospel. And the problem is, the problem is, is you only admire this. You only admire this, and you don't replicate this in your own life. And what you need to recognize is that Paul is not calling you just to an admiration of his, of his example, but to replication of his example as well. The closest thing I could think of this week to compare this to is the Twilight Moms. Twilight Moms. Anybody know what Twilight is? Anybody read Twilight? Nobody? One person. Okay, yeah. I haven't read Twilight, but Wikipedia apparently talks about it. So uh, Twilight is a series of novels and movies that are making millions and sell selling millions. And, you know, basically it's a story about a 14-year-old girl or teenage girl named Bella who has this very steamy romance with, like, a 100-year-old vampire named Edward. And it's, it's a, I haven't, <laughs> did somebody say sick? <laughs> Sorry, I just heard that. Oh, that was so funny. Um, <laughs> um for those of you who read this, I'm not, I don't even have an opinion about Twilight. I'm not, I'm not speaking out against it. But, but here's what's interesting. Apparently it's very romantic. It's very uh, steamy. It's, you know, it's all about romance and pursuit and sacrifice. And, and it's basically no surprise that it's sold million of co millions of copies and millions of people are going and seeing the movies. Uh, because, I mean, it's just the type of stuff that, like, teenage, and teenage girls and girls in their 20s would, would be crazy about. But here's what's been unexpected about this is that the moms of the teenagers that the books are directed to love it as well. This is what's totally unexpected. So this week I was reading this article about how there's these groups of moms all throughout the country who get together, they sip wine, and they get like in a circle, and they talk about like the romance, and they talk about the sacrifice, and they talk about, they just, they just talk about how amazing it is to see that sort of pursuit of love of one man towards a woman, the sacrifice of a woman for a man. But here's the interesting thing this article talked about. It said that what these women do is they go to this because it's an escape from their failing marriages, their dull lives, and it's an escape 
from reality. And so what happens is they circle up, they sip wine, they talk about sacrifice, they talk about love, they talk about commitment, they talk about doing whatever it takes to make romance work, and then they go home and they just hate the marriages that they're in, and they put no effort into it whatsoever. And before you judge, and before you scoff, what you need to recognize is, is that it's such a picture of the Christian subculture that reads the Bible, circles up, talks about love, sacrifice, caring for the homeless, sharing your faith, blah, 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 and you do nothing. And I've just gotten to the point where I don't care what you know, I don't care about your theological degree, I don't care about what sort of verses you can spout off. If you don't live it, if you don't point to yourself and say boldly, follow me as I follow Christ, then I don't care what you know. I don't care. What Paul is saying is don't just admire me, don't just talk about me, don't just be a fanboy of me. Replicate my example. And just as I called men and women to follow my example, as I follow Christ, that's what every single Christian should do as well. Don't just talk about it, replicate it. And if I'm just completely transparent, that's exactly what I want for our church. If you're exploring our church, I'll I'll tell you, if you join our church, here's what I'm going to push you towards. I'm going to push you towards... If you're a guy, if God blesses Megan and I with a son, I'm going to push you being, towards being the type of man that I can look my son in the eyes and I can point him to you as an example. And I can say, you see the way he loves God? Do you see the way he's gentle? Do you see the way he treats women? Do you see the way he carries himself? Do you see the way he sacrifices? Do you see the way he's kind? Do you see the way he loves God? Follow that man as, as he follows Christ. And if you're a woman and God blesses us with a daughter, that I would point our daughter to you. And I would say, you see the way she adorns herself with godliness? You see the way she is gentle? You see the way she is quiet in her spirit? You see the way that she isn't just kind to people's faces, but she's kind behind their backs as well? You see the way she loves God? I would be proud if you would grow up and be a woman just like her. God is calling you to be an example. And my question for you is, are you ready for that level of responsibility? Are you ready for that level of responsibility of being an example, an ambassador for him? Because we've talked about this for weeks, and the reality is, is unless you plan to live in the wilderness for the next 60 years, you will be an example. You will be some kind of example. It's just a matter of what sort of example you will be. Plea number one is this. God, show me my need. Plea number two is this. God, make me an example. Now, if you've been paying attention, what I started with is saying that the main thing that Paul wants us to get is what? Know and love your Bible. And we've barely talked about the Bible at all, right? Like, so what's going on here? Well, the reason I haven't talked about it is because Paul hasn't talked about it for 13 verses. And for 13 verses, here's what Paul's been trying to do. He's been trying to raise attention. He's been trying to create attention for us. Because let's just, let's just think about this. If plea number one is, God, I am seriously more jacked up than I could ever imagine. And plea number two is, God, make me an example that makes a profound impact on other people's lives. That creates a tension for us to say, how am I supposed to get from point A to point B? And what Paul is trying to do in your life and in mine is, before he even talks about the Bible, is to make 
the Bible personal for us, to make the need personal for us, to make us feel desperation that we desperately need God to speak. If we are going to be able to get from point A of, of it being our fault to point B of God doing something great with our lives, it all comes down. It all comes down to whether or not it's personal for you. That's what it comes down to. Let me explain, okay? Because this is so, so important. Two weeks ago, I'm brushing my teeth in my bathroom. And I'm walking around our bathroom. And in our bathroom, we have one of those bathroom trash cans. You know what I'm talking about? They're like this big. I mean, they're so, they like hold no trash in them whatsoever. You can like drink out of them. I don't drink out of it. But it looks like a cup, doesn't it? And so I'm brushing my teeth. And I come across this trash can. And I look at the top. And there's a card in it. A card in it. And in this card... In this card, it's a birth announcement. You know what a birth announcement is? I know we have a lot of single guys, and you have no idea what that is. So I actually brought one. This is a birth announcement. And it's just a card you send out when you have a child to let other people know that, hey, we just had a baby. And now, here's the thing. is The reason that I was so startled by this, and the reason, uh, I, I mean, I just stopped brushing my teeth. I think I had spit going down my faith, face, is, is, is you need to know something. If you send my family a card, if you send us, you know, uh, a wedding invitation, if you send us a... Uh, if you send us a, a birth announcement, if you send us a Christmas card, the reality is, is that card is going to be on our refrigerator. And it's not just going to be on our refrigerator, it is going to be on our refrigerator quite possibly for all eternity. Because Megan loves it when somebody sends us a card. And it's going to go out there. So you can imagine, I have this in mind, I'm looking down at the trash can, I see this birth announcement, and I'm thinking to myself, this person, like, must have really ticked off Megan. You know, like, this person must have really ticked off Megan, or it must have been a really ugly baby, or, like, what, what is it that would lead to this needing to be thrown in the trash can? So I reach down, I pull it out, I look at it. This isn't, this isn't it. I look at it, I'm like, you know, it's not an ugly baby. I mean, I don't know who this person is. Finally, I flip it over to the back. You know what it was? It was an advertisement. It was an advertisement. It was, just, it was just a mass mailer. And on the back, it said, like, you know, get 100 cards printed, get 50 free. And then, I mean, of course, of course, like, of course you throw that in the trash, right? I mean, nobody, it'd be weird if, like, I walked into your house and you had an advertisement that went out to 100,000 people of somebody's baby that you have no idea who it is on your refrigerator and you look at that every day, right? Like, what is the matter with you? See, the reason that it was in the trash is because it wasn't personal whatsoever, and what it boils down to, what Paul is saying to us, is it's not until the need is personal. It's not until the scriptures are personal. It's not until you see them directed, ex- directed precisely to you and to you alone that you come to a place where this book becomes something that you, might as well not throw, that you might as well throw in the trash because when it comes down to it, you don't read it anyway. So why do you even own it? It all comes down to whether or not it's personal. And so in light of that, here's what Paul says. Verse 14, he says, But as for you, notice the contrast again. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What Paul's going to do in his final plea is this, is that we would cry out to God, God, Make me a man, make me a woman of the book. Make me a man, make me a woman of the book. Now, in that plea, what he's going to do is give a what, and he's going to give a why. Okay, he's going to give a what and a why. And the first is the what. And here's what he says. He says, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. So, so continue in your knowledge of the sacred writings. It's a specific 
reference to the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The what is be a man, be a woman of the scriptures. Love this book. And this book isn't just about anything. This book is able to make you wise for salvation. That's what this book is entirely about. It is about how we, as messed up people, are able to receive salvation. This book is 66 books long. I think it's 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. It was written by about 40 different authors over about a 1,500-year span in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. And despite all of that diversity, this book has a central theme that we are messed up and we desperately need God to redeem us. And he has provided salvation through the work and through the person of Jesus Christ. What Paul's saying is that is what the entirety of this book is about. That is the message of the Bible. And by you knowing the Bible, you can know the message of the Bible and you can be made wise for salvation. That's the what. Be a man or woman of the book that is able to provide for you salvation. And here's the why. The why is in verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The what? The what is to be a man or woman of the book. The why? Because this book is the very words of God. This book is the very words of God. What we as Christians believe is this is the doctrine of inspiration. This is the doctrine of inspiration. And by that, what do we mean? is that God is knowable. He is intelligible. He desires to be known. And consequently, he has revealed himself. But the way that he has revealed himself is not by writing things in the sky. It's not by writing messages in your alphabet soup. It's not by just giving you sort of feelings and urges. He has spoken through his word. And over the course of history, he has inspired certain men to write his revelation to mankind so we might understand who he is in an, in, in an intelligible and, and quantifiable way. That's what he's saying. That God is knowable. Many of you, many of you say, if I just could have God speak, I could know what I'm supposed to do with my life. And what Paul is saying to you and to I is that God has spoken through this book. Many of you say, I could, I could really give in. I could really commit my life to Jesus. If I just knew that God was there and I knew that he spoke and I knew what he was like. And what Paul's saying is that God has spoken through this book and you can know him. And you have a trustworthy and reliable uh, means by which you can know the character and nature of the God who loves you, who sent his son for you and desires to redeem and restore your life. The what is that God is knowable and that you should be a man or woman of the book. And the why is because God has spoken. I understand some of you probably don't agree with that. Some of you probably have a lot of questions about that. That took me a while to wrap my mind around. So if you have any questions, any pushback, it's welcome here. I'll be sitting here afterwards. You can ask me about it. You can disagree with me. We can go out for coffee and talk about it. But I at least want you to know the claims that Paul is using. The claims that have been validated by the greatest minds over the past 20, century, 20 centuries, that this book is an accurate and reliable means to know the character and nature of God and what he has done on our behalf through the work of Jesus. Now, in light of all that, here's what I want to do in conclusion. I just want to ask you three very simple questions. Three very simple questions as we try to define and examine our hearts of can we be men or women of the book, Okay? We know and love our Bibles. The first question is this. 
do you own a Bible? Okay? Do you own a Bible? And by that, I'm not trying to be smart or sarcastic or anything like that. Many of you either don't own a Bible or the only copy of the Bible you own uh, is something that was maybe given to you at a graduation. And, you know, it, the words are words that were used 400 years ago, and you don't really know what to make of them. And what I would say to you is you just need to buy a good Bible. Just, just save up for it. Spend as much money as you would spend to go out to the movies and buy yourself a good Bible. I understand that's a difficult thing to do. You go to Barnes & Noble, there's a million different choices of what type of Bible you can get. It feels like for me when I go to the grocery store and try to pick out peanut butter and there's like 80 different kinds of peanut butter. You're like, can't I just have peanut butter? Can't I just have a Bible? Yes, if you need help with that, I would love to help you. You can email me, you can talk to me. Just so you know, what we use here at our church is the English Standard Version of the Bible. That's what the Bibles that are on the tables are. The Bible was translated because it was written in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. And because of that, there's good translations and bad translations. And the English Standard Version, the SV, is not the only good version, but we like it, so we use it. Uh, so if you want to follow along with what we use here and what we will continue to use here, uh, th buy that version of the Bible. If you can't afford one, I'll buy it for you. Seriously, it matters that much. That's not an empty promise. You can collect. I'll, I'll, I'll pay for it because it's that, it's that important. Question number two is this. Do you own a Bible? Now, I mean own in a different way here. I'm not trying to be clever, but the reality is, is it's not enough just to buy the Bible. You have to read it as well, don't you? It's not just to buy, you have to read it as well. I remember in college, I had a roommate, I'm not sure if I told you guys this or not, I had a roommate in college who had a really nice Bible. I mean, it was really, really nice. But he left it in the backseat of his car because he thought it would provide good luck as he drove around and, like, went throughout his day. And the reality is, is this book isn't magical, it's not mysterious, it's not, you know, it doesn't have supernatural powers, and it's not good luck. I mean, it's just a book. You know, it's leather and it's paper and it's font. And I mean, it's just a book. And the reality is if you don't read it, it won't be any good in your life. And what I want to challenge you to do is not just buy a Bible that's a good friend to you, not just to buy a Bible that's your own, but I want you to buy a Bible that you make your own as well, that you underline, that you read, that you highlight, that you actually bring with you to church because that's what Christians do. You know, we bring our Bibles to church. We write things in the margin. We ask questions. We bring our Bibles. We read our Bibles. We take notes in our Bibles. We love our Bibles. We own our Bibles. And we make ourselves men or women of the book. We come not as spectators of church. We come as participants. We come not as spectators to our quiet time. We come as participants. And we, and we try to break down and understand the text for ourselves. I wanted to show you this. This is the first Bible that I ever really owned. My mom gave me this in 2004, about four months after I became a Christian for the very first time. And this was my Bible throughout college. I underlined it. I read it from cover to cover. I've got notes in the back. I've got questions. I've got directions right here. These are directions to the first church I ever went to, and it's still in there, the Shannon Baptist Church. Uh, this Bible is my own. It's very, very precious to me. It's about to fall apart, but it's very precious to me. I keep it in my, keep it in my library today. I, I've owned another Bible. I, in seminary, I bought a Bible that had columns where I could take notes. So when people preach, I could take notes, and I could, could just follow along. I could better understand what it is that the text says. I just had this Bible given to me a couple weeks ago as a gift to say, Congratulations on what's happening in the life of your church. This Bible has a lifetime warranty. It's really nice. So I guess I'll own three Bibles in my entire life. I'm looking forward to that. But what I would encourage you to do is, is own a Bible. I know I'm saying the same thing over and over and over again. But don't just buy a Bible, but make it your own. Underline, highlight, circle. Do whatever it takes to make it your own and make it a good friend. Something that you can pass on to your children and your children's children to talk about when God was doing an amazing work in your life. Third question is this. Do you have a plan? Do you have a plan? Because it's not enough just to own a Bible. It's not enough just to desire to read the Bible. But you need to have some sort of plan to make it happen. And so maybe that means then that 
15 minutes a morning. 15 minutes a morning, you get up before work, and you read your Bible. Do you know that if you spend 15 minutes a morning for 365 days straight, you probably will read through the entire Bible, unless you're a really, really slow reader, in an entire year? Maybe it means that you want to follow along with what we are doing here at the summit as we go passage by passage. And we put all that information on our website and on our blog, and you can follow along and study along with us. Maybe it means you've never read this and you don't know where to start and you kind of have that desire. What I would encourage you to do is read the Gospel of John. It's in the New Testament. Uh, It's the fourth book in the New Testament. And it's just a story of Jesus' life and what he's done on our behalf. It's 21 chapters long. It's 21 chapters long. And if you spent 15 minutes a morning this week, 15 minutes a morning, you would get through about three chapters. And that means by next Sunday, you would have read through the entire life of the entire life of Jesus, from his birth to his death to his resurrection to his ascension. Start somewhere. Have a plan. Help people with you. Have people help you in that process. Own a Bible. Buy a Bible. Own it and read it and have a plan. So in conclusion, three requests. God, show me my need. God, make me an example. God, make me a man or woman of the book. And all of that is towards a central thrust that we would be men and women that love and know our Bibles. Not because, not because again, there's special powers in this or not because you know, it's good luck to read it and you'll have a better day if you do. It's because we love the man that this book is all about. We love the man that this book is all about. And what we're pushing to is not just knowledge of the Bible. We're, ta- we're pushing towards knowledge of Jesus. The man who lived for you, the man who died for you, the man who conquered the grave for you, the man that has done everything on your behalf that you need to make peace with God. So in light of that, my prayer for our church is why we teach the Bible, that's why we love the Bible, that's why we go through books of the Bible. What we want you to do is to know and love your Bible. Okay, let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much um, that you have spoken and then we aren't left in the dark about who you are. We, don't, we aren't left in the dark about who, what, what you aren't. But instead, we can speak accurately and intelligibly about your character and your nature and who you've revealed yourself to be. So God, please, let us be men or women of the book. Let us give ourselves to knowing this. And let us be disciplined in such a way that we can love and know this book. And consequently, we can love and know the man that this book is entirely about. And that we can achieve and find salvation in Jesus Christ. We just ask all these things in his powerful name. Amen.